0: Good morning. Thanks for being here this morning. We are uh, leading up to a study in the book of Hebrews. And when we recently preached our way through the book of Judges, we did a sermon on each of the first six books of the Bible. One sermon, one whole book, in anticipation to try and make sure we had a good contextual grounding for what we were about to study in the book of Judges. And if you know anything about Hebrews, you'll know that it is more than any other New Testament book assumes an understanding of Old Testament history and theology. So we want to try to, to do that again. We're going through each of the historical books of the Old Testament, giving one sermon to try and lead us up to a, a better grasp on what God did through the nation of Israel so that we can better understand what happens in the book of Hebrews. In the midst of that, uh, we just in the last couple of weeks went through the first eight books of the Bible. And today I have 1 Samuel, so if you have a Bible you can go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel. And I'll try and cover the whole thing. I, I, need, I have to, in interest of full disclosure, tell you this morning, I don't know how to do this, all right? That no one teaches you how to preach 31 chapters in one sermon. I, I, I walk away after the first service and go, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not sure that that's what you should do. This is, it's peculiar, it's weird, I don't know how to do it. So that being said, I don't know, thanks for coming along for the ride. Also, in anticipation of that, a few years ago I was in an ABF and I was uh, asked to teach out of a a part in Joshua and I was like well I need to fill in a little bit of the backstory and then I started like, I kind of need to fill in all the backstory so I ended up writing um, all of the backstory from uh, Genesis to Joshua but very very quickly so I even though I can't do 31 chapters in what was like 55 minutes earlier today, I'm going to now uh, rattle off for you eight books in two minutes, all right? So we'll, we'll cover the first, this was what I uh, added on a couple books to what I wrote for that Joshua series, and here you go, the first eight books of the Bible in two minutes. God, there is nothing, he speaks, there is everything. The best things of everything are people. God, Adam and Eve, do what you want but don't eat from that tree. Snake, maybe you should eat from that tree. Adam and Eve, yeah, Okay. God shows up. Adam, did you eat from the tree? Adam, well, yeah, but she... God, Eve, did you eat? Well, yeah, but the snake. God, okay, I'll fix this through your offspring. The snake will strike the heel, the offspring will crush the head, Johnny will sweep the leg. Offspring, offspring, offspring. God, you're the best thing that I made, but also you're the worst. Flood. Let's try again. People try again. God, you're still the worst. Language scramble. I'm picking one guy and I will bless you all through him. God, Abraham. Abram. Actually, it's Abram. God. Not anymore. I'm going to save the world through your family. Abraham. Cool, but I'm like a hundred and I have no kids. Isaac is born. God. The promise goes through you, Isaac. Jacob and Esau are born. Rebecca. I choose Jacob. Isaac. I choose Esau. God. I choose Jacob. Ash. I choose Pikachu. Laban. I have two daughters. Jacob. Cool. I choose Rachel. Laban. How about Leah? Jacob. No, I said Rachel. Laban. Great. Leah it is. Jacob. Rachel too. I like her best and of all her kids, I love her son, Joe. All uh, all Joe's brothers get together. We don't like Joe. Let's kill him. Judah, maybe sell him. Joe, whoa. Bros, yeah, let's sell him. Joe, not fair. Lady Potiphar, Joe came on to me. Joe, whoa. Joe goes to jail. Joe, not fair. Thirteen years later, dreams and stuff. Joe's brought to Fro. Fro looks at Joe. I had dreams, you know. Joe says God knows. Fro says seems like you know. You're in charge. All the people come to Joe. Joe looks up. Bros, 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 who's this guy? Joe, I'm Joe. Bros, whoa. You sold me. God sent me. (laughs) Hey, Thanks, Joe. Family grows because of Joe. New fro. Didn't know about Joe. Moses goes. Said, God said, let us go. Fro. No. Moses. Ten plagues. Fro. Okay, go. Sea parts. Let's go to the land. Twelve spies. Doubtful people. You're the worst again. Wander and die. Time to conquer and thrive. Joshua. More spies. Rahab. And the walls came tumbling down. Othniel. Okay. Ehud. Okay. Brock. Okay. Gideon. Okay. Jephthah. Meh. Samson. Ugh. first Samuel chapter 1. All right. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Just in case, just in case you missed the last two weeks, you're caught up. That was everything. You didn't need anything else. I can't do 31 chapters in 50 minutes, but I got eight books in two. All right. So today we are in 1 Samuel, and uh, we are trying to understand uh, what this book is about. Really, the history of it, but as well uh, the, the theological significance of what is going on here. And this is a story about Leadership. It's a leadership transition, not just in individuals, it is that, but also in type of leadership. So we're going to watch the sun set on the era of the judges and the sun rise on the monarchy. And we're going to get to ask a question as we work our way through this text. What makes a good leader? Because there are really four key character studies, and it's really three prominent ones and one lesser that's kind of included. But a character study for us to ask, why is this person a good leader and this one not? And, I mean, this is always palpable. If there's two people in a room, then there's a leader. There's no way around that. It's an inevitability of being people. But in our culture right now, we are about to engage collectively on choosing a leader, right? The the roller coaster is like just going up over that hill. And we're about to get all of the gravity down into election season that will just go on forever, it feels like, right? And we'll have to, collectively, as a nation, think, who would you want to be the leader of this country? Frequently, that's not the choice that you get, right? So it's probably more instructive to think, uh, in the abstract terms, if you had the only vote that counted for president, who would you pick? I've maintained, I said last hour, I picked Thomas Sowell. I I feel like Thomas Sowell is the best answer to that question. He's an economist, he's like 88 years old or something. I still think he'd be the best answer. But it it, it leaves you to ponder, what is it that makes a good leader? What do you want? What, What are you looking for? And as that sun sets on the judges and rises on the monarchy, we'll see good and bad on both sides of that. The story of the judges is really, it's chronologically difficult. All of those stories kind of happen, and sometimes they lead from one to another, but sometimes they don't, and it's hard to know exactly what is going on and where. And part of that is because Israel at that time is less of a unified nation and more of a, like, confederation of tribes. They're kind of together. And this is a story of unifying under a leader, it should be, by the way, in your Bible, it's broken down into two books. It was originally written as one book. The reason we have it as two is, the best guess, is that the scrolls were too long. So they had to put it into two separate scrolls. That's true for 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. All of those were individual stories that we broke into two parts. So we're going to get to see the good and the bad, and, and there's plenty of it. And this story really follows Three main leaders. The, the fourth kind of asterisk leader is, is the high priest, Eli. And he's kind of in there as a, a lead up to Samuel. But the first eight chapters are focused on Samuel. And then chapters 9 to 15 really focus on Saul. And then chapter 16 to 31, David. But there's overlap on all of those. Samuel doesn't die until chapter 25. So the, each of these stories is going to overlap with the others. We're going to bounce around in this text quite a bit. The big picture, when you look at First and 2 Samuel, so we'll have to wait for some of this till next week, is that God is sovereignly bringing about the Davidic line so that he can bring about a Messiah. That is where we are going. That is what is happening in this book. We're filling in the gaps to how we get to the person of Christ. And, and quite helpfully, that is what the book of Hebrews is going to be concerned about. But today, we have these three leaders in this this ongoing, overlapping transition. I'm going to look at the text, but before we do, let's pray. Father God, would you, in these ancient stories, give us a deep and abiding appreciation for who you've revealed yourself to be and what we can know and how we can glorify you through this story. Give us sensitive eyes to see well and boldness to obey. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Before we get to 1 Samuel chapter 1, it's important to remind ourselves that Israel had grandiose ambitions. If you have a Bible, flip to Exodus 24. (coughs) Exodus 24, right in my little two-minute deal, this is right after uh, the new fro and the the plagues and Israel's allowed to go. And on their way out, they received the law. And that starts in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus with the Ten Commandments and then goes on for a few chapters. There's going to be a bunch of other details added in there. But as they receive that law in chapter 24, verse 3, the collective people come together and, verse 3, Moses came, told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Well, we just studied the book of Judges, so you know that after that, there there should be like a sound effect that goes in there—the the like overbid sound on the prices, right? Boom, boom, you know, like you didn't do it. Nice try. If you the the lasting sentiment from the book of Judges is in that last verse, if. If you uh, remember how it ends in Judges 21, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the gap between the intentions of God's people and the behavior of God's people is massive. They don't do everything that God told them to do. In fact, it is broken beyond the nations around them. Israel is just as sinful and wicked of a place as everyone else that they are supposed to be a light to. And that is the setting that leads into 1 Samuel. With that as the backdrop, we have a miraculous birth to open the story. This is an ongoing theme. This happens often, often in the Bible, all of the patriarchs, but think probably most notably through the birth of Jesus, that God intervenes and brings about a child by miraculous means. In this instance, there is a man, Elkanah, and his two wives, Penina and Hannah. And Penina has children, and Hannah does not. And she is broken by that. And this goes on, you see in 1 Samuel 1, 1, Samuel 1 verse, chapter 1, verse 3, this goes on year after year. It's not a short period of time. It is lengthy. And in verse 6, you find that Penina, the the wife who has kids, provokes Hannah over and over and over again. She's mocking her in her brokenness. And every year the family would go up to sacrifice, and Penina would remind Hannah, wouldn't you like to make some sacrifices for the kids you don't have? Right? Just brutal. And in verse 10 of chapter 1, Hannah prays and weeps with bitterness in her soul. Love that combination. Such such the, the opposite of what we normally think. She worships through bitterness. There's sermons upon sermons that could be preached just on that idea. The combination of sorrow and worship. And as she prays and as she humbly comes to continue to worship, even in her brokenness, God answers her prayer and rewards her with the son. And as that son is given to Hannah, she immediately turns back and gives that son to God. She names him Samuel. He is our first character study the prophet Samuel. He is given for service as a priest working with the high priest Eli and Samuel comes to Israel through miraculous means and Hannah offers a prayer in chapter 2 and in many ways that prayer frames the entire rest of 1st Samuel. Because if I were to sum that prayer up into one succinct sentence it would be quite simply the Lord opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now Proverbs 334 had not been written yet, and James 4 had not been written to quote Proverbs 334, but that is what Hannah is after. God was gracious to me through my humility. God gave grace, and the arrogant will get their time in court. This becomes really the umbrella through which we can view all of the rest of these leader transitions you have some pretty sharp contrast between the arrogant and the humble. Those who are living for their own glory and those who are living for God's glory. So on the arrogant side, you'll have Eli and his sons and Saul consumed with their own name, their own glory, what's best for them. And on the the humble leading for the glory of God's side, you'll have Samuel and David. And you'll have a contrast in the priesthood and a contrast in the monarchy of what leadership looks like that is for its own glory and what leadership looks like that is for God's glory. That is the the book in a very, very succinct nutshell. The boy Samuel grows up in a broken environment. As soon as that prayer closes, we get to the first not great example of Eli. And the description for Eli's sons in 1 Samuel chapter 2 is one of the most negative in the entire Bible. They are worthless. And they are described that way because they are priests, but they actually stop people from being able to sacrifice. They take the sacrifice away before it's burned up so that they can consume some of the meat for themselves. They are a barrier to worshiping God instead of being a conduit to worship God. It is a self-serving attempt at leadership. Eli is the exact same way. He's overseeing this and doesn't do anything about it. He, later in chapter, three, uh, or chapter 4, you'll find him uh, old and blind and fat, and his physical description is indicative of the spiritual description that is happening in Israel. And he's really painted in the language of the judges. So if you flip to chapter 4, you see as he dies... Uh, he falls over backwards from his seat when he gets bad news about the Ark of the Covenant. We'll get to that in just a moment. He falls over and breaks his neck and dies. He was old and heavy for Samuel 4.18. He judged Israel for 40 years. So the, the, the language and the tenor of the judges is still continuing on. Eli is right in line with what we have just seen at the end of the book of Judges. Broken morality, self-glory, Vain approach to leading the nation. As a result of this broken priesthood, we have a broken nation. As that story comes to a close, the view of, uh, out of chapter 4, uh, that death to Eli comes as a result of his two sons leading the nation of Israel into battle. And they're losing the battle and they think well, let's just make God fight it for us, and they go grab the ark, even though they weren't supposed to, and they try to force God to fight their battle, and they both die on the battlefield, and the ark is taken, and one of the sons, I can't remember if it's Hophni or Phineas, Phineas's wife, not Ferb, different guy, Phineas's wife, she is, is pregnant and about to give birth. When she gets news that her husband has died in the battlefield, she is going to die in, while giving birth. And she, before she dies, she names her child Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed. That is the view of the nation. Now, what they don't know at the end of chapter 4, chapter 5 and 6, the ark, the vanquished ark, takes a victory lap through Philistia. Right? The Philistines are parading around their trophy, but everywhere they take the Ark of the Covenant, every city, people are dying, they're getting tumors, they're getting sickness, and they, after a little while, they're like, send it on, we don't want it. They, they send it through all the major cities, and then they go, all right, we're done with this thing. Just send it back to the Israelites. So, if you will, the, the camera, on, if from Israel's perspective, is on this broken glory of God departed, but they don't know that in chapter 5 and 6, God is still fighting their battles for them. Their leaders have led them to a place where they're leading their efforts. Everything that they're doing is on the back of their own abilities. They don't trust in God, they trust in themselves. And so when the ark is taken, they go... We've got nothing left, it's all bad, nothing nothing good here. This Phineas' wife inscribes into her child's name the national tragedy. And then all of a sudden they look up after nine months and the ark is brought right back to them. And God is fighting their battles. The difference that we're going to see between Eli and Samuel is that God is still going to fight the battles for Israel. But Samuel is going to go before God and desperately want to be a part of what God is doing, whereas Eli and his sons want God to be a part of what they're doing. God, I guess you can come along. We got this one. So the ark comes back, and in chapter 7, Samuel steps into leadership. This is really the, the quintessential chapter to understand Samuel as a person and to understand the contrast between him and Eli. So Samuel steps up in verse 3, he says to the house of Israel, return to the Lord with all your heart, put away your foreign gods, and direct your heart to the Lord, serve Him only, and He will deliver you. So verse 5, he gathers all the people, and he prays for them. They gather, they say, we have sinned against the Lord. Samuel judges the people. But when the Philistines, verse 7, heard the people of Israel gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So Samuel now, again, we have this uh, brilliant storytelling. Samuel has the exact same opportunity that we just saw Eli and his sons fail at. We're fighting against the Philistines. Samuel is going to take a very different approach. He's not going to rush out into battle and say, We got this one. Grab the ark. We'll take care of it. Rather, what does he do? Verse 8, people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord and cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack. But the Lord thundered against them with a mighty sound that day. And the Philistines were thrown into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. This is the contrast between a godly leader and a self-glorifying leader. Samuel relies on God. The enemies are at the gate, Samuel. What do we do? Pray and sacrifice. Pray and sacrifice. We will trust in the Lord. We're not going to run headlong into this foolishness, trusting that we are mighty. We know that we are only here because of the good hand of God. It is not on the back of our efforts. It is God's. Israel wins a great victory and then in verse 12 you've sung the song many times you've gone what's an Ebenezer I don't know (laughs) here I raise my verse Samuel chapter 7 verse 12 Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer for he said till now the Lord has helped us so he, he sets up this stone a rock to remind Israel of the faithfulness of God to deliver them don't rely on yourself look to the Lord Every time you pass by here, look at what God has done for us. Don't look at your leaders and what they have done. A good leader is going to point you, not to himself, but to God. Verse 15, we see that Samuel judges Israel all the days of his life. He is shining example from what we have in the biblical text, what, like, top five leaders of Israel. And there are a few key verses before we move on to Saul. Uh, Samuel doesn't die, as I said, until chapter 25, so there's a lot of overlap for the rest of it, but before we move on to Saul, we need to look at a few key verses between that overlap. First, in chapter 8, if you jump down, Israel gathers together, and they want a king, Right? Samuel's sons are not as good as he is. Verse 5 of chapter 8. They said to him, Behold, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. This is a habit for him. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people. And all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now, a lot of people, I think, make a mistake here that the, the problem is that they wanted a king. And I, I understand why they get to that conclusion just from this text. But I think if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you'll find that kings have been in God's plan from the beginning. So in chapter 17 of the book of Genesis, when God is making covenant with Abraham, he again reiterates what he's already said in chapter 12 and in chapter 15. But this time he adds on to the great blessings of Abraham that from him will come kings you look in Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, chapter 17, there's an entire section devoted to rules for the king of God's people. So this has always been the plan that there is going to be a king. The problem is not Israel's desire for a king. The problem is that Israel desires it to be on their terms, and they want it to be so they can be like the rest of the nations, right? They are the, I I should have looked it up, I forgot after last hour, what's the girl's name from Willy Wonka? I can't, it, it, she, they want it now, right? Like, I want a king now. I don't want to wait, I want it now. That's Israel. Is it Veruca salt? Yeah, one of those. All right, somebody looked that up for me, appreciate it. Um, she, Israel is, is Veruca salt. I want it now. I want a king. And not only do they want it on their terms and their timing, they want it so they can be like everyone else. And that's exactly what they're going to get, a king just like everyone else. A king that exists for his own glory. We'll get there in just a moment. Actually, we'll get there right now. Two more uh, key texts that, that show Samuel's role in this. As that king comes about, Saul, it's good for like one chapter, and then it, the wheels start to fall off pretty darn quickly. In chapter 13, Saul fights the Philistines, he wins a battle, and he's waiting for Samuel to come and offer a sacrifice and thanks to the Lord. And yet, he can't wait any longer. Samuel's taking too long, so he offers the sacrifice himself. He takes the role of a priest, even though it is forbidden to him. And Samuel looks at him, what are you doing? For Samuel 13, verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man over his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul utterly fails. He does not humbly rest on God like Samuel has shown him to do. He takes it upon himself, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to more of Saul in a moment. Samuel is the spiritual voice for Israel. Same thing, probably uh, more uh, well known in chapter 15, Saul is told the Amalekites are a thorn in the side of Israel. Saul is told to go and destroy everything. Don't leave any people, don't leave any animals, don't take any treasures, you need to destroy it all. And Saul does most of it, but he brings back slaves and he brings back animals and he sacrifices some of those animals to God and Uh, Samuel looks at Saul and goes, what are you doing? Again, chapter 15, verse 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Sometimes the uh, application of preaching is really easy, right? To obey is better than to sacrifice. Saul did what outwardly looks like a good religious thing, but inwardly it is done while disobeying God. And it it would be foolish for us not to pause here and think we are not prone to this type of behavior as well. Giving the outward show of religious fidelity while inwardly not obeying what God has called us to. Do not think that you can wallpaper over your disobedience with good deeds. To obey is better than sacrifice. We make this same type of mistake all the time. One more key verse out of this book from Samuel is in chapter 12. This is his farewell speech to the nation. As I told you, it's a long farewell. He doesn't die until chapter 25, so it takes a little while, but... He's about to hand over the, the reins to Saul, and in chapter 11, Saul is really first crowned as king. So Samuel gives his farewell address. I'm no longer the leader. I am now an advisor. And he gives his farewell address to the people, and in conclusion, verse 24, Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is Samuel to a T. He leads by pointing others to God. He doesn't bring all the attention on himself. What are you to do? You are to obey him. You are to fear the Lord. You are to serve him faithfully. Your life should reflect those priorities. Again, easy applicationary uh, text here. In whatever you lead in your life, and it may not be much, right? If you're, you're in elementary school, all you lead is your Lego guys into battle against other ones, right? You lead whatever it is that you hold the, the wheel on in your life, you do so while fearing the Lord and serving Him faithfully. In whatever control you have, if you want to be someone who mirrors a godly leader do so out of obedience to God, out of the fear of the Lord, and out of faithful service to Him. This is the call of Samuel. He lives a life of listening to God. He's an ardent listener, passionately going before the Lord, seeking His advice on things. And that is how Samuel leads. He is the prophet that Israel needed. But, as we've already seen, Samuel's leadership gives way at the request of Israel to the bad king Saul. Saul was chosen in chapter 9 for his impressive physical characteristics, right? <coughs> he, in verse 2 of chapter 9, And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, for his shoulders were upward. He was taller than any of the people. Israel looks around, they go, that guy, he's the prettiest one, tallest, strongest, he'll be the king. And again, don't <laughs> it sounds so silly to look at it, although all of the studies suggest that we are still susceptible to these same problems, does it not? I, I got it wrong last hour, uh, I was mixing up who Kennedy was debating, I think it was Nixon, I've, if I'm not, the, the, as the story goes that in the, the first debate between JFK and, and uh, Richard Nixon, if you listened to it on the radio, you thought Nixon won. If you watched it, you thought JFK won. Why? He looks better. He, it's just true. They, they, all kinds of people suggest that FDR would have never been able to be elected if people had been able to see him while he was speaking because he was in a wheelchair. His voice projected all kinds of power and confidentiality But the visual is something that we are prone to putting too much of an emphasis on. We still are. It's exactly what Israel does. He looks the part. And so Saul is chosen. And as I said, it goes well for a very, very short period of time. Short period of time. Chapter 11, that's basically about it. And from then on out, we saw in chapter 13, he does what he shouldn't do, being a, taking on the role of a priest. In chapter 15, he rejects God's obe- uh, uh, um, commands again. He, even at the end of chapter 14, he has this debacle with his son Jonathan, this vow that he makes. And then we get to the overlap of the next king that Saul is always suspicious of because he knows, Samuel's told him, God is gonna take away this kingdom from you. You've behaved poorly. It's not yours anymore. He's going to give it to another. So now Saul is always on the lookout. Who's it going to be? I'll put him in his place. And the wrongs of Israel choosing a king are righted as God chooses a king. Why? The famous line, the Lord, uh, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David is chosen not because he is head and shoulders above everyone else, he's like prepubescent, right? He's like the last child, he's out in the field, oh yeah, we've there's a scrawny one, do we want him? All right, I guess so. And they bring David in, and, and Samuel, the anointer, goes, God says, this is the one. Really? So David bursts onto the scene, and Saul is always glancing at him with a crooked eye. There's the famous story of David and Goliath. I'll come back to that in chapter 17. David rises to national prominence. He's leading armies, right? Saul's basically trying to get him killed, so he sends him out on the battlefield all the time, and it backfires. He succeeds in everything that he does. It, it rings out of Joseph in Genesis 39, where he's a a slave in Potiphar's house, he's in jail, and the Lord is with him and he succeeded in everything that he did. And so David becomes quite famous, and in chapter 18, you see in verse eight and nine that as the army is coming back in, the women have this chant, right? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands, and so in verse eight, Saul is very angry, and this saying displeased him, said they've ascribed to David ten thousands, to me they've ascribed thousands, what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The eyeing quickly gives way to trying to murder as spears are hurled. As I said, he's trying to trick David into dying, right? He tells David, you have to kill 200 Philistines if you want to marry my daughter, thinking that the Philistines will kill David, but once again, David does it. And over and over again, Saul rules his people consumed with his own glory. The portrait of the bad king is one who is so caught up in his name. What is my legacy going to be? What is everyone's perception of me? How is my lying going to continue? And his own selfish ambition drives him to madness. If you flip back to chapter 15, this is just such a great, this this is after that uh, to obey is better than to sacrifice section, right? He hasn't obeyed. You were supposed to destroy everything. Instead, you brought things back. You kept the treasures. You sacrificed the animals because you thought it would make you look good. You did the wrong thing, and Paul says, or excuse me, Saul says, you're right, but chapter 15, verse 30, he said, I've sinned. Okay, it's a good start. You got that one right, Saul, but Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Yeah, I did the wrong thing, but can we publicly pretend that I didn't, right? Like that, let me go ahead and paraphrase that one for you. Let's make a big display of all the good things that I did because I'm the king. I know I did it wrong, but yeah, it's not a big deal, Samuel. Like lighten up. And Samuel, you know, I hear Samuel sigh. Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. this is a self-glorifying king. A leader who is filled with his own glory. And, And the fact that he is so sinful and that he has so much power is going to lead Israel into all kinds of brokenness. Side note, this is a, a, just a good theological principle to apply to most things that you think about. What, one of the great virtues of our political system is that our founders understood this. And so they tried to keep power diversified among different people, whether or not that's accurate and happening, well, that's another conversation. But they had all kinds of theological wonkiness, don't get me wrong. That being said, they had a good understanding of the sinful nature of humanity. Because if you give all the power to one person, then all of their sin is baked into every decision they make. They have a proper theological anthropology. This isn't just, by the way, in politics. There's a reason why we run this church the way that we do. Because if it was just one person who was in charge, and I make all the decisions, you guys all follow, and that's the way it goes, it would be great when they get it right. But when they get it wrong, All of their weakness, all of their sin gets baked into the DNA and the system of the place. So here we have a plurality of elders. Again, this doesn't just work for politics and for churches and your business and your families and your... uh, Do not think that one person making all the choices is going to be a good thing, because even when you have a good king, which we're going to see in David this week and particularly in next week, sin still is present. All right, I'll get off that. Sin's present and all. Even a good king is going to have shortcomings. So be careful when you consolidate power. All right. PSA over. Saul. His failures are prominent. I've already mentioned to you chapter 13, chapter 15. He assumes the role of a priest. He doesn't obey God. From n- chapter 19 on, he's chasing David. The rest of the book, right? 12 more chapters is just Saul pursuing David throughout the hillside, trying to kill his rival. Chapter 22, he has a bunch of Jewish priests killed for helping David. And then in chapter 28, he consults a spirit to try and help him win a battle. And he ultimately takes his own life in that battle in chapter 31 as he is about to lose. He is a wicked king consumed with his own glory. It is for me that this place exists. They chose me. That's all about Saul. Saul. The Lord opposes the proud. That is Saul. But gives grace to the humble. Here comes our good king, David. David shows up on the scene in chapter 16, as I mentioned. He's anointed out of nowhere. He's the least likely candidate, and yet he's anointed. And as Saul has proven to be so self-absorbed, God tells Samuel, we're going to go find a new king. He sends him out. He finds David, and he's anointed, and he's, as I said, quickly thrown into national prominence in chapter 17, with arguably one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible, David and Goliath. And you immediately, again, in the same way that we see the contrast between Eli and Samuel, you immediately see the contrast between Saul and David. Because the most famous of David's heroics is marked not with a concern for himself, but with a concern for the glory of God. David shows up. He listens to Goliath taunting the nation of Israel. He goes, what what are you guys doing? Why is nobody fixing this problem? Right? And you look, if you go to chapter 17, verse 26, all the men of Israel, verse 24, they have fled from him for they were afraid. Has this man, uh, uh, have you seen the man who come up? He's going to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give his daughter his father's house and free. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? How dare he? It's not David's glory that he's concerned about, it's God's. In quite the contrast from Saul. Right? Yeah, I I sin, but honor me anyways, right? When David gets to talk with Goliath quite famously, Verse 45 of the same chapter. Then David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth and that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly may know that, Lord, saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hand. If he had a mic, he would have dropped it. Right? That is a bold thing from a teenager to say to a great warrior. I know I'm outmanned, outgunned, outstrength in every category there possibly is. Right? David's like like the creator player on Madden. Like he has like no stats. And he's going against the greatest. He says it doesn't matter because it is the glory of God that you are besmirching here and God will deal with you. Do you see the contrast of a leader who has relied on God's strength for God's glory versus Saul who relies on his own strength for his own glory? This is a a portrait in leadership. We have a hero and an anti-hero. So David famously kills Goliath. He becomes famous in all of Israel. In chapter 18, he becomes close friends with Jonathan, another good sermon series in and of itself, if you wanted it. Everything he does succeeds in chapter 18, Saul's enraged, he's tossing spears, he's trying to trick him, and from chapter 19 on, David is on the run for his life as Saul pursues him. On the run for his life. Hiding in caves, staying in enemy territory. And in two notable instances, chapter 24 and chapter 26, we have David, who has every opportunity to kill Saul, and he doesn't right? This is the famous story. He's deep in the cave. Saul comes into the cave, only shallow. David sneaks up and cuts off a corner of his robe, and then Saul leaves. He goes out, and he calls to him. He says, look, I could have killed you if I wanted. I have part of your robe right here, but the Lord's anointed is not going to be removed by my hand. And Saul concedes, you are more righteous than I. Now, it's in this period of his life that David writes some of his most famous psalms. Psalm 18, 52, 53, 57. And I want you to look at one of those right now, particularly from this instance in the cave, Psalm 57. While you're turning there, if you will, just ponder, if you were on the run from your life, from a mortal enemy who's chasing you, and you have an opportunity to, to tip the scales in your favor, what would be on your mind at that moment? You're going to die if you don't do something. They're in your hand. What is going to consume your thinking? Let me tell you what David thought. Psalm 57, look at the inscription above. To the choir master, according to, do not destroy, a mittem of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for you and you, my soul, takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God, Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. Come down to verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be in all the earth. They set, uh, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Jump to 10. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the earth. Let your glory be all over if we're honest, that's not where my mind would be, right? I would be salivating with revenge. David's been on the run for a long time. He had to leave his family, and in fact, all of his men go, this is your chance. God gave him to you. Go kill him, and David stands and turns and looks at his men and says, I will not. Will not take into my own hands when I am going to rise to the throne. I will trust God. What a stark contrast. What an astounding way to lead. Lord, I depend on you. You are my refuge. When you want to bring me to the forefront, then I will go, and not a minute sooner. I will still hide in the caves, right? his mighty men who are with him, like, David, we've got families. I'd love to go home. Can you just take care of this guy? And this is the crux of the difference between a good king and a bad king. Humble reliance on God versus proud, vain, self-glorifying, relying on yourself. Saul is perpetually concerned for his own glory. David is perpetually concerned with God's glory. And that's the story. That that tension continues through the rest of the book until Saul takes his own life in chapter 31 as he loses a battle. So what do we learn? What is the significance of this narrative? I have a a question mark on this point. It just says, be like... (laughs) Because so frequently when we get to Old Testament narratives, you'll find people will say, here's a great story, here's a great character, you should be like them. Or here's a bad character, you should not be like them. I I want us to ponder, is that how we're supposed to read our Bible? Because there is a danger here that if when you read a narrative, you just go, all right, what I need to do is just collapse that narrative down into one moral uh, uh, prescription, and I just need to be like that person. The purpose of these stories is for me to just know how to behave. And so you've heard interpretations of this type of text before, right? You've heard a sermon or a Bible study of somebody, David fought giants, and you've got giants. You need to name those giants in your life and be brave and be like David, right? or on the on the, the uh, antithesis of that Saul was not good Saul took all kinds of things that he shouldn't have done he he transgressed uh, the commands of God you should not be like David or Saul you should be moral and if we're not careful what we end up advocating for when we read narratives is a a dead moralism an attempt to read our bible that that's trying to help us improve against an infinite standard that you have no chance. So, be careful of a bee like application of a text. However, we've got a little bit of attention because if you read 1 Corinthians 10, 6, we'll see that Paul says these stories were written as an example for us. Or in Romans 15, verse 4, everything that was written in the times past was written for our instruction. So what do we do? How do we properly understand these narratives? Should I be like David or no? The answer is so helpful for us from the book of Hebrews. Quite famously, in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, you have a bunch of these stories, right? These things that were written down for our example. And what right? You can go through and you're like Enoch, and you've got Abel, and you, you've got Noah, you've got Abraham, you just go right down the line. And what is it that the author of the book of Hebrews wants to point you to in each of those characters of a time gone by? What is it, church? Faith. You are not told be moral like Enoch, you are told to be Faithful to have faith, not in your ability to do what is good and right. You are to have faith in God. And if that is your understanding of this story from David, yes, you should be like him. That is how you are to do a be-like understanding of a narrative. You are to see the faithful uh, expression of a God-follower David, who does not work and live and strive for his own glory, but strives for God's glory, who doesn't take things into his own hands, but trusts in God and say, I am to be like David insofar as I am to be someone who trusts in God, who has faith. Now, don't get me wrong, that faith will lead to morality and obedience, but you have to get the order correct. Do not be like David in that you are making good moral choices. Be like David in that you are relying on God, and morality will follow. And the same thing with Saul. Don't not be like Saul in that he made bad moral choices. Don't be like Saul in that he did not rely on God. You understand? Am I making sense here? We we have to be careful. Faithful followers of God have lives that are marked by a trust of God and a concern for His glory. It has always been and always will be. So when we read these stories, we are to look at it and say, we are, the example that is for us is to show us to not be self-praising, self-trusting, self-justifying people. Rather, we are to be God-glorifying, self-denying, people of faith. In that regard, we are to be like David and not be like Saul. And let the morality come down the road. Doesn't mean there aren't moral things to learn. There are, but don't take it as a be like and miss the faith that has to precede the morality. Morality without faith is dead. One final thought in terms of the significance of these stories the inadequacy of leaders you go through this story of 1 Samuel, and really 2 Samuel is is going to be an extension of that. It is woefully, painfully obvious that human leaders are not going to solve the problems that we have. They are deeper than we are able to solve. Even the good ones, right? Even Samuel, you are like, he is pretty darn good. Well, he is, but as Hebrews chapter 7 is going to tell us, He has a limited time frame on that priesthood. And then you're rolling the dice with whoever the next priest is. He's not a forever priest, and so you've got a problem. Even when you get a good one, it's only for a short period of time. He cannot forever stand between you and God. So that priest is limited in his ability to to help bring people to God by his own lifespan. Human leaders are inadequate, completely full of shortcomings that prevent Them, us, all of us, from being able to solve the deeper problems that we have. Israel's leaders do not lead them into a deeper relationship with God, rather, into a more fractured relationship with God. And so, the lasting flavor that comes out of these narratives is to point you, as I said at the beginning, to the glorious need of a coming Messiah. All of the good and the bad leaders of Israel still ring out with an echoing need for deeper redemption, for lasting salvation, and Israel can't offer that. The old covenant can't offer that. The old priesthood has no solution. Stay tuned for the book of Hebrews, we'll get there. But what the old covenant cannot do in terms of offering salvation, the new covenant in Christ does. And what Human king cannot do in solving Israel's political problems. The new king, Jesus, does. And what the old priesthood does not solve in Israel's spiritual problem, the forever perfect high priest of Jesus does. And so as we walk away from this narrative, we look at it and we say, aren't you grateful? Aren't these stories here to remind us of the glorious salvation you have in Jesus Christ? That it far outpaces anything that they had before. These former ways, the old covenant, the former leaders were not able to offer meaningful salvation. But church, you and I have that. And the stories here are to remind us, the stories of of the Bible's past. Give us the proper perspective to see how great of a salvation we have in Jesus. Lord God, we praise you for giving us this glorious revelation to be able to see the need for your son and in the inadequacy of these leaders of another time. Would you help us savor that salvation that we have? To rely on you, dispense with anything that even has the flavor, the, the, the lasting instinct of self-ability, would you help us put it to death, God? We want to rely on you and not on ourselves. And we do so looking to your son, Jesus, who has accomplished for us what we could not do on our own. And praise you, God. In your name we pray.